the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act explained. Before the Green New Deal was announced by congressional supporters in January 2019, the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act, H.R. 763, was introduced as proposed federal legislation. Climate Monitor spoke with Citizens Climate Lobby's Miami leader Greg Hamra about H.R. 763, how it offers a creative and practical vehicle for the Green New Deal initiative, and the opportunities for the U.S. House of Representatives and the Senate to enact bipartisan climate solutions to drive down carbon pollution. The interview was conducted on Sunday, February 24, 2019, as Mr. Hamra was returning from a Citizens Climate Lobby meeting in Tampa, Florida. Greg, there's been a lot of discussion about the Green New Deal, but we want to understand the difference between what CCL, Citizens Climate Lobby, is doing with regard to legislation and how that differs or complements the Green New Deal. We've heard about H.R. 763. Can you tell us the distinction? Yes, Mitch, thanks for asking. There's a lot of confusion, a lot of misinformation, uh, and a lot of myth. And that, in fact, has surrounded what we've been after for over a decade. And what we've been after for over a decade uh, is essentially a consensus opinion of economists across the political spectrum, uh, climate hawks from the most, uh, the world's most famous climate scientist, Dr. James Hansen, and many others, and business leaders. And, and there's a very common misconception. Uh, so first of all, let me first say that the Green New Deal has been an amazing uh, feat of, of drawing people together and promoting uh, the issue of the climate emergency necessarily. Um, this is, this is a, a critical issue at a critical time after 30 years or more of being ignored by those in charge. And I think that these young people deserve to be heard. They deserve to be listened to. And, and uh, it's very easy to be smug about this and, and to tell them they don't know what's going on. Um, that said, I want to make it very clear that whether it is the Green New Deal, uh, a, a, a term that has not been invented by this group, even Tom Friedman mentioned this back in 2007, a very similar type of all-hands-on-deck plan, or the Paris Accord, or the UN's Sustainable Development Goals. All of, our, all of those are fantastic feats of uh, a result of hard work, building political will for climate action. Each is non-binding, and each represents important but let's be very clear, aspirational goals and targets. I oftentimes talk about the Paris Accord being a set of targets, aspirational goals without a mechanism, without a vehicle to get where we need to be. I'm not the only person to say this. Many experts agree. The goals have to be translated into specific policies that have years of political work ahead before they can be introduced. These are the so goals that's where, in the Green that's New Deal. where CCL comes in? That's, that's the yeah. effort? Yeah, exactly. And, and so it's not just CCL. I'm going to talk about carbon pricing in general. And then, of course, I can compare our carbon pricing mechanism versus several others that are out there. But I want to be very clear. Those are roadmaps without a vehicle to get to where they want to go. And, and I just want to be very clear right now. 
we have no shortage of solutions. Yes, more things need to be developed, and we do want more innovation. But we, the problem is not that there's been a lack of solutions. And I speak to you while sitting in a, a Tesla right now that's at a supercharger. This is one of the types of solutions that exist, whether it's solar panels, uh, negative emission technologies. We know how to take carbon out of the air. Those are solutions. We have, there are solutions, and then there's carbon pricing. I'm going to quote Paul Hawken here, famed environmental guru and author. He's written books like Natural Capitalism, The Ecology of Commerce, and he's very well known for the popular book that's out now. He's the editor of Drawdown, which lists the top 100 solutions to reverse global warming. One thing that's not in the book, and quite deservedly, is putting a price on carbon. Because, are you sitting down? Sure am. Carbon, price, <laughs> carbon pricing is not a solution. It is a policy, and there is no greater policy to unlock and accelerate those solutions than putting a price on carbon. That is Paul Hawken talking, not me. He said that, and it's not just his opinion. It's an opinion that I've held and many other experts hold who understand the distinction between these worthy, valuable goals that the Paris Accord is after, that the climate element of the Green New Deal is after, because the Green New Deal is far sweeping and it's about a lot of different things. And we have to be very, I think, clear about perhaps not conflating the climate crisis with other issues, even though they do relate, and even the UN Sustainable Development Goals or SDGs. And with that in mind, I've come up with another sort of uh, three, it's not an acronym or an abbreviation, but I want you to think of SDG in this context. Uh, if you agree, and I believe everybody does, that the climate crisis is systemic, long-term, and global. It's a systemic problem. It is a long-term problem that is, what is it, 200 years <laughs> old since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, and it's global. Any kind of policy solutions or policy responses that are not sustainable, durable, and global, there's your SDG, that means any policy responses that are not also systemic, durable, and global cannot be effective. What does systemic mean? It affects the entire system, not just one sector, and underscore, not just one country. Last I heard, global warming is global. And so if it is a U.S.-only policy that does not have some global reach to incentivize other countries to follow suit, we're not attacking global warming. We're treating a global crisis with more of a topical cream or a topical ointment. It's, we're treating it like it's a national problem, and it's a global problem. That is short-sighted. It is systemic. Fighting a pipeline is, and winning that battle is winning a NIMBY battle. The best thing you can hope for is they pick up stakes, go somewhere else, and poke holes in the planet somewhere else or move the pipeline somewhere else. NIMBY not, be, meaning not in my backyard. Precisely. Thank you. And, and so that is a NIMBY battle. And believe me, I'm not against NIMBY battles, but let's put things in perspective. I'll be the first. If you're going to dig up my backyard to poke holes in the planet to set on fire dead dinosaurs, I'm going to be the first one out there. But I'm not going to tell myself I'm solving global warming by chasing you away. Because if you're just going to go somewhere else and do it, because the way that the system, again, there's that word systemic, the way that the system is set up is that it is advantageous for you to poke holes in the planet and take apart mountaintops 
to extract dead dinosaurs so we can set them on fire and sell them for cheap while the true costs are, bur- are burdened, the, the society is burdened with the true costs. You don't have to pay for the pollution. And that is the system at its core that has to change. And so there are policies that are systemic and some that are not. And we are oftentimes attacking this or addressing this with linear thinking. Pipeline project in my backyard or offshore drilling, okay, fight that. Fight them on the battlefield or put solar panels on this roof or in this city. Um, That's great. I want to see more solar panels or more renewable energy, but more importantly, I want to solve the climate crisis. And we need to apply systems thinking to the systemic problem. Applying linear thinking and playing whack-a-mole with the threats and applying whack-a-mole solutions is just not how we get there. And so back to what is carbon pricing versus any of these, again, worthy, lofty, but aspirational goals. It is the catalyst that allows the market and sends a signal to the market to drive capital away from dirty, high-carbon energy toward clean energy and low-carbon solutions. The problem is that market actors are driving capital, and we are all market actors. We're celebrating a few exceptions, like the Tesla I'm in right now, <laughs> but we, want to, we need to see all of the solutions sprout up at a much greater scale and speed. And what is going to help, how, how is that going to happen? Market actors need a price signal to move capital toward these low-carbon solutions. So is right that where now, HR 763 comes in? Yes, it's exactly where the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act, that's House Resolution 763, comes in. And like I said, there are similar plans, but none as effective or comprehensive as 763 for details we can cover perhaps on another call. The main point is the barrier, the foundational barrier that is in the way of all of these wonderful solutions is well known by all of the experts. And I will say it once and maybe one more time. That barrier is artificially underpriced fossil fuels, unfairly underpriced fossil fuels that do not have to pay their true cost to society. They're enjoying a huge subsidy. How much is that subsidy? Well, the IMF has has tabulated it at being roughly $700 billion a year in the U.S. alone, about $5.3 trillion globally. That subsidy exists not in the form of the U.S. government handing over bags of cash to ExxonMobil, right, and other oil and gas companies. It exists in the fact that they enjoy a subsidy of not having to pay for their pollution. We do. And the best way to remove that subsidy is have them pay for the solution. And so here's the confusion. Many people think about these different solutions like solar panels, like composting, like public transportation, electric vehicles, I can go on and on, or even removing CO2 from the air through direct air capture, negative emission technology, or planting trees. All of those are solutions, and they're outlined beautifully in the Drawdown book by Paul Hawken and company. Project Drawdown is the name of the project. I'll repeat again what he said in a moment. Those are solutions. In order for those solutions to scale up, we need to get the economics right. And this is what William Nordhaus won his Nobel for on October 8th, the same day that we heard the IPCC's doomsday report, uh, the 1.5 degree report come out. On that very same day, Paul Romer and William Nordhaus were awarded the 
Nobel Prize for Economics for their four decades of work in climate economics. And he lays the groundwork for the reason why we have to have a price on carbon. What that means is we have to make fossil fuels more expensive. Right now, they enjoy the, the lowest rung on the, the totem pole. They're the cheapest fuel. And so that is why market actors favor low carbon. It is not because market actors are bad people. It is not because they hate polar bears. It is not because they're trying to hasten our extinction. It is because that is how the market works. And so this is not about being punitive. If that's the reason for supporting this, that's all fine. But the reason is we will not see the rapid global proliferation of solutions that exist unless we raise the price of fossil fuels. As long as fossil fuels remain the cheapest, it doesn't make financial sense for market actors to put their money into low carbon. I'll say it one more way. Until low carbon equals high profit, the market will not follow it. Am I so making how does sense? This, how does this uh, House Resolution 763 achieve that? We need political will for a livable world, and we need Congress to enact a law that would put in place a steadily rising price on carbon and make fossil fuels more expensive. Let me just be very clear. When we hear price of carbon, many people don't know what it even means to put a price on carbon. It means make the true cost of carbon be reflected in the price. Make the price of fossil fuels honest so that the price tag tells the truth about what's good or bad for society. We just want to put all fuels on a level playing field. Well, what that means is making the price of fossil fuels more expensive and the well, quite reasonable fear is what's that going to do to my pocketbook and to the economy? If we had a carbon tax, full stop carbon tax, where the money goes into the government, this would be detrimental to the economy. It would grow government. It would make everybody a bit more poor, especially poor people, because they uh, a greater proportion of their income is spent on on energy and fuel and food and things that have a, a higher carbon footprint uh, than people at the, uh, at the top of the income scale of a smaller percentage. While they have a bigger carbon footprint, it represents a smaller percentage of their total in income. And so uh, a carbon tax would be regressive. Let's be very clear. That is not what we're ab advocating for. A tax goes into a general operating fund. This is a carbon fee, which goes not just to a specific program that benefits society, as has been introduced in other plans, this goes right back into your pocket. This means that the government doesn't keep any of it. 100% of the fees collected at the wellhead, at the mine, and at the border, at the port of, of extraction, at the point of extraction or the port of importation. That is where the fee is assessed, not to you and me and not to any corporations that you know of except for those that extract. That is where the fee is, is assessed. The money is returned 100% of the net fees returned to you and me, to every American household, and that's the fee and dividend part. This has four pillars, the fee part, the dividend part, the border carbon adjustment, which levels the playing field for domestic manufacturing. If you and I, Mitch, uh, manufacture widgets in America, our price of making those widgets is going to go up, let's be honest. And if we're competing with widgets made across the ocean in, say, China, 
of course, the next question that most people ask is, what about China? But anywhere outside the U.S. And we're, we're competing against those. We're going to be at an economic disadvantage. And what the border carbon adjustment does is three things. For certain high carbon imports, it charges a, a tariff at the border uh, if the exporting country does not have a commensurate price on carbon. And what that does is three things. It levels the playing field for you and me, making our competition the same price or more expensive so that we can compete on a level playing field. It also discourages us from up and leaving. Think about this. If we had a USA-only carbon tax or even a USA carbon fee and dividend, you know what would happen? We would lower emissions in the U.S., but global emissions would go up. Think about that. If we didn't have a border carbon adjustment, if we didn't have the global reach to this policy, you and I would be crazy not to get up and leave and have it made somewhere else and outsource our pollution. And that is exactly what has happened over the last decade plus with our reduced emissions overall, except for the last two years. Global emissions have gone up because we have outsourced our pollution. And that's what we would do. But that border carbon adjustment, which I will henceforth refer, refer to as a BCA, not only does it level the playing field, by right pricing those imported goods so that we're, we're competing on a level playing field, it discourages us from leaving and outsourcing our pollution, and most importantly, it encourages other nations to follow suit. Those countries would rather keep that money in-country. We don't really want that money to be part of our dividends. We want them to lower emissions and to have a level playing field uh, uh, to put a price on carbon as well so that this is not just a U.S. thing. We know that it's not called U.S. warming, it's global warming, and we need to encourage other countries to do it. I will say this, nearly 50 countries are already pricing carbon. We're doing it not at a, at a commensurate or equal rate, but if you look at the carbon pricing dashboard from the World Bank, you'll see that there's carbon pricing in something like 53 jurisdictions. That includes over 40 countries. China is pricing carbon in over seven uh, regions, they're, they're, they're instituting an emissions trading scheme. We, we think that a straight uh, fee is, uh, is a little bit more uh, effective and transparent and predictable. There are two forms of doing this, but the point is they are pricing carbon already, just not enough. And that's the third, that's really the third leg of the school. There are four legs here, four pillars, and that's the border carbon adjustment, which sends the signal across borders to other countries to follow suit. No U.S. regulation can do that. A U.S. regulation says, hey, you, industry, do less bad. Hey, you, uh, power industry through the Clean Power Plan, clean up your act. That's great, but it would raise the prices of energy, and you're not going to get a check from the government for the increased prices. This is where a program like this has a – and that, by the way, such that example I gave is not systemic. It's saying, hey, power industry, clean up your act. That's not addressing the systemic problem. It's cleaning up one industry. It's sort of a whack-a-mole approach. It's not SDG. It is not systemic. It's certainly not durable. Half the state sued the EPA and said, oh, hell no, we're not going to do that. Even the state of Florida, Pam Bondi, sued. They were among the 24 states that sued and said, no way. It's going to raise the prices of energy for my constituents. So it's certainly not durable. Okay? And even if it did pass, think about how long would it last, four years, eight years? One of my astute volunteers shouted at the last meeting, too, right, by the midterms, it might be rolled back. Um, and it's certainly not global. Well, what we're talking about here is global because it sends a price signal across, across borders. And, and so that manufacturer of the assembly outside of Guangzhou, China, that goes into the machine that's perhaps uh, uh, manufactured in Guangzhou that comes to the U.S. to do whatever that machine does, 
he's going to feel that price signal. And that is a huge signal that sends the signal much farther and wider than a U.S. only regulation can send a signal. Um, the fourth piece of this is that, and we needed this for buy-in, but I, I don't argue against it for one bit. Uh, it's a regulatory pause. Uh, well, you can't really pause something that's not in, <laughs> in gear. So if we did have these regulations in gear, it would put them in neutral. But we can't put them in neutral because right now the U.S. does not have any protections or regulations that are specifically targeting greenhouse gas emissions. But it puts them, it keeps them in neutral with a regulatory fallback that after a period of time, this program, if it does not reach the targets that are expected, then it restores control back to the federal government, back so that the EPA can put in place protections to then take over. Again, we don't have any of those in place right now, and we've got nothing to lose in any way, but this plan would have a much more aggressive and wider sweeping success rate at reducing emissions, not only domestically, but globally. And so I will very quickly recap the four pillars. There's the, the fee part, the full dividend or rebate part, the BCA or border carbon adjustment, and the regulatory fallback part where it relaxes only redundant regulations to eliminate double jeopardy, that your industry and my industry, if we're uh, an industry that would be affected by those regulations, we shouldn't have the double jeopardy of both having to jump through the regulatory hoop, which is a cost to us, and be hit by the carbon price, right, the tax or fee. Um, and so that's what that's all about. Um, so any H questions? HR 760, <laughs> I'm sorry, HR 763, it summarizes, it gives you the outline of what you've been talking about, that vehicle to promote the Green New Deal? Is that the best way to summarize it? It, it is the vehicle necessary for unleashing the solutions. Uh, let me use one more metaphor. The solutions are tools, tools in the toolbox. Some people mistakenly refer to carbon pricing as one of the tools. That couldn't be farther from the truth. It is not one of the tools in the toolbox. And by talking about it as a solution, people mentally put it in the toolbox. No, not at all. It is the key to the toolbox that unlocks the tools and allows them to flourish, not one of the very tools that it seeks to unleash. In other words, it lifts the boot off of the neck of all of the solutions. That boot on the neck, again, is underpriced fossil fuels. We have to handle that. That is what is preventing market actors from directing capital toward low-carbon solutions in clean energy, right? They're preferring high carbon because it's cheaper. Only when we fix that accounting error, which I sometimes call the accounting error that's killing the planet, the fact that they get to enjoy this profit and, and the costs are offloaded and subsidized across society, until we address that, we're not going to see the widespread proliferation of solutions. And so the Green New Deal wants solutions. The Paris Accord wants lowered emission through solutions, and so do elements of the sustainable de development goals. And so we're not going to get there. It just doesn't make sense for market actors to move capital toward those solutions until we address this one issue. And so it, it, it doesn't, let's be clear, the Green New Deal is many things. I, I want to make it clear that we're talking about the climate part of it, right? The greenhouse gas part of it here. And they cannot, it just doesn't make financial sense for market actors to move capital to these solutions while fossil fuels remain the cheapest. Uh, and that's, it would enable those solutions to scale up. It would give them 
a chance that would put them on a level playing field. And there we might see also a realization of Paris targets and globally a realization of some of those uh, sustainable development goals that we see in the UN's SDGs. So H.R. 763 is is, uh, currently pending in Congress. It was reintroduced in 2019 in January. Is that right? Yep, the 24th, Thursday. I was in D.C. on that day. And and how many supporters does it have that are congressional co-sponsors? It was introduced, it was a bipartisan bill, so it was introduced with Republican Francis Rooney out of Naples and Ted Deutsch, Democrat out of uh, Palm Beach named Ted Deutsch. And now it's up to, uh, I said, 12 or 13. We just Last week, we gained two more. I'm almost losing count. I think we're, we're, we're past a dozen at this point. Um, we are looking for more Republicans to muster the leadership and courage that they need to join in with this market-based policy that is a perfect alternative to uh, top-down command and control regulations, which they rail against. That is precisely what appeals so much to uh, conservatives is they prefer market-based approaches to solving society's problems. This should appeal to people on the left or environmentalists because it is much more effective than any regulation we have ever seen. And so it really does satisfy both camps. And it's, so what, is your, it's, what is your prognosis for 763 for the remainder of 2019? Let me take that question and expand it to 2020. I, I know that it is possible, but it's highly improbable, that we would have enough people on the Republican side, particularly in the Senate, and we're looking for another companion bill like we had last year for this. There was a companion Senate bill uh, right at the end of the lame duck. Um, I don't think that's going to happen while Trump's in office, but I'm personally hoping that in 2021 we can pass this with a Democratic president, and perhaps uh, more in the Senate, but we need more Republican buy-in. But let's say, let me be more clear about this need for durability. I didn't address that quite well enough. I explained to you what is not durable, uh, a, a plan that is constantly railed against by industry and Republicans, such as the Clean Power Plan. For any plan to stand the test of time and truly be effective, it has to last many years, not one or two presidential terms or two years, a half a term. It needs to be durable. And so we need Republicans. That's it. We need to embrace Republicans and bring them to the table. And that is the only way that we're going to get a piece of legislation to it needs to go and grow. It needs to be doable and be durable. For it to be doable, we need we need Republicans. And for it to be durable, we need Republican lawmakers. And one part that helps it be durable, I like to call it the glue, is we go back to the dividend. Who's going to come in after a year or two or ten on a plank of taking away that check away from every American household? Good luck, right? Who's going to come and, and, and run on a platform of removing your dividend check? That sets the hook. And so we need durability. We need Republicans on board, and this is a small government, fiscally conservative, market-based policy that promotes American ingenuity and competition, and all of these things that conservatives hold dear, and it also addresses the problem not through a big top-down regulatory framework. So we essentially have three choices, 
top-down command and control, which is neither systemic nor durable nor global, do nothing, which is where we are now, which is exactly what the Trump administration is having us do, nothing. He's even removing protections, that pre-existing protections, how little uh, effect they have, or this third option, which is systemic, durable, and global, if we can get some Republicans to muster the leadership and courage needed to embrace their very own principles. That's what's needed. I don't so, Greg, think yeah, where do people get more information about the HR 763 effort, uh, CCL? Where do they get more data, more facts so they can jump yeah. on board and understand this? Perfect. Okay. We need support. We do need more grassroots support, but we need more grass top support, and we need thought leaders and opinion leaders to endorse this. And so far, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you what has happened and where people can go to do what I'm about to explain. Uh, you might be pleasantly surprised to learn that uh, Florida's leading lead consultancy, the Spinnaker Group, has endor- endorsed this plan. They were one that I brought uh, to the endorsement table. We have over 100 endorsers already. The Ski Industry Association, in addition to the Aspen Skiing Company, has endorsed. Uh, Carnival Cruises based in Seattle has endorsed that. I'm just rattling off a few. Also, um, Darren Golden of Golden Solar has endorsed the plan. Um, and, and so there's an endorsement track for businesses, and that is what's going to move Republican lawmakers like Marco Rubio. We've been in touch with his office, and we asked, what's it going to take to move the senator? The voice of business. And so to answer your question, there is a general website for information on the plan. It is simply energyinnovationact.org. There you will find energyinnovationact.org. That's exactly correct. Energyinnovationact.org. The name of the bill, again, is the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act. So this is the official website for the plan, energyinnovationact.org. On there, you will find information about the bill. You'll see the supporters, and you'll see the endorsement track. We want endorsements. Now, how do we get there? That's for grass tops, leaders such as yourself, and uh, businesses. You can do that endorsement or talk to me, and I'd like to help you make that happen. Now, two other ways. For grass tops, I'm sorry, grassroots people, regular everyday people who want to get involved to learn more about this and learn how to lobby Congress, to learn how to talk to their lawnmaker, or just learn how to schedule information sessions for somebody like you or me and promote what's happening. You could do whatever you're comfortable with. The organization that I represent is Citizens Climate Lobby. We're a 500-chapter, 100,000-volunteer organization. We're, In fact, we're international, but all 50 states, we had representatives from all 50 states on Capitol Hill last June. 1,350 people, over 500 meetings with members of Congress in the run-up to this bill release. And we've been doing that for years. The way to get there, you can, you can find the regular website at citizensclimatelobby.org. Paul Hawken likes to say, it's not game over, it's game on. And so I've created a short URL using Bitly, the website that is used for creating short, memorable URLs. They all begin with bit.ly. And I created a short URL that goes to an informative page that that outlines the four pillars of the plan that I just mentioned. Plus, there's a join button where you can join CCL. There's no cost at all to become part of this organization. And that is at bit.ly slash game on. I'm sorry. That is at bit.ly slash CCL game on. That means Citizens Climate Lobby. Bit.ly slash CCL game on. 
and that will take you to the web page where you can learn more about the bill. Uh, join CCL if you like. Now, you, you have those, your own web page, right? Uh, I do, but I want to also let you know uh, that I've joined the Business Climate Leaders Action Team. We're a subset, one of the many action teams of CCL, and we are available at businessclimateleaders.org. Now, Business Climate Leaders is part of CCL, and what we do is outreach and engagement to the business community. And if you go to businessclimateleaders.org, particularly if you are a business or business owner, you'll see that we have a growing list of sector-specific teams, business sectors. I've been tasked with building out some more teams, for example, for the defense uh, industry, DOD, and real estate, which I think the leader of that sector team should be in South Florida, don't you, Mitch? Right, for real estate? Uh, That team, uh, we have some people that are ready to be on it, but I think we need a, a leader for that. And so you can see these business sectors teams like insurance, finance and insurance, um, Real estate will encompass developers and green building. Uh, they're not all committed to memory. We have electronics. We have a separate oil and gas team. These are groups of people that are industry professionals from those industries that can message to people in the industry who understand the power of fixing this accounting error, of putting a price on carbon, without which we just won't see these solutions scale up and proliferate at the speed and scale the world needs to see. Well, Greg, so, thank you. Thank you. I, I really appreciate uh, the, uh, the insight and the opportunity to understand better what you're working for at CCL. We've been talking to Greg Hamra, group leader for CCL Citizens Climate Lobby in Miami. Again, Greg, the website for CCL, please give it to us again. CitizensClimateLobby.org. There's a short one, CCLUSA.org, if you want to save keystrokes. Thanks for joining this installment of the Climate Monitor podcast. Climate Monitor, Earth's Climate Channel, stream broadcasts as a public service, video and films about climate change and sea level rise issues, research, news, and solutions on Roku TV, Amazon Fire TV with Alexa, and at climatemonitor.tv. Please join us again for the Climate Monitor podcast.